0: Good morning, church. It is good to see all of you. Uh, I am not Harry Fujiwara. I don't know if you're surprised by that, but uh, uh, Pastor Harry and I uh, have uh, switched pulpits this morning. My name is Joey Gonzalez. I'm the pastor of Grace Bible Church on the Upper East Side, just kind of right across the park and uh, we 're very grateful i 'm very grateful to be here with you all this morning uh, with my family as well i 'm very grateful that our church uh, on the other side of manhattan they 're getting to sit under the preaching of god 's Word by harry and um, it 's uh, always a joy and a pleasure to be op- be able to open up god 's Word uh, together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a reminder. Uh, truly of the universal church, right? We, we are independent local churches, and yet we are all going to be worshiping alongside each other for all eternity. So we praise the Lord for that. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And before we begin, uh, I am going to uh, pray briefly. But if you would turn first to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Before I read, uh, allow me to uh, pray one more time for uh, this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning that you've given us, even just echoing the prayer that was prayed already. We thank you for the many ways that we've been able to worship you and the ways that you have shown your uh, kindness to us, even this morning as we have sung these songs and prayed and read your word and fellowship together. We ask now that as we turn to the preaching of your word, that you would give us humble hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would do what only your Spirit can do, that you would take any words that are said from our minds and our ears to our hearts and cause us to live differently. God, I pray that you would help me to preach clearly and boldly and be out of the way of the text this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. By the time you get to Ephesians chapter 4. As you're uh, reading through this letter, Paul has already kind of unpacked a lot of doctrine. There's a lot of theology that he's gone over. Everything from chapter 1 where he's uh, telling believers of their riches in Christ and the eternal inheritance that we are to have. And then going into chapter 2, the spiritual life that is uh, a gift of grace even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins because of the mercy of God. Uh, And even that truth, bringing believers together to chapter 3 where he starts to reveal this mystery that he talks about that is revealed that in essence is the Gentiles being fellow heirs with with the Jews, fellow heirs along with Christ because of faith in Christ. Uh, What he's telling them is Jews, the same way that you are part of the people of God, Gentiles are also now part of the people of God and they're not any lesser than you as Jews. And for the Gentiles, you're no better than those who are Jews either. And then he goes on and prays for for, uh, the saints, the believers that he's writing to. And so he's gone through all of this doctrine. He's uh, laid out all of this this truth for these two different groups, for the Gentiles and Jews that are now living together, that are now worshiping together. And you get to chapter 4. And he starts to address a question that they would have naturally not only had, but really they would have been feeling and they would have been trying to figure out what the answer to, what the picture was to be like in, in light of all of this truth. And that is how then do these two groups of people live together? right if you have these gentiles those who had their own uh, pagan ways of worship and you had these jews that that had their own uh, rituals and feasts and ways that they were to worship and not even just the gathering of the saints together but in everyday life how were they to to live amongst each other and even more than that uh, different than what paul talks about in say 1st corinthians or at the end of romans uh, even more than then how they are to live together, how are they to grow together? How are they to to be sanctified alongside each other? Well, the answer is actually a very simple one that Paul gives us. The answer is in unity together. One commentator says this, Individual growth that is not shared with the rest of the body is not true spiritual growth or maturity. You get the point of what he's saying here, right? If someone is just saying, well, I'm just going to grow on my own in the faith. I'm going to grow to love Christ on my own. And I don't really need the church. I don't need other believers, uh, not only to pour into me, but then to pour into other believers. uh, They're actually not growing spiritually. They're actually not showing a sign of maturity in their walk. It's actually a sign of immaturity. In essence, Paul gives us here a guide to walking in unity, walking in true unity, walking in Christ. Uh, An outline for this morning uh, for us to be able to uh, understand this text and the flow of it is this. We're going to observe four necessary descriptors of truly walking in unity. That's four necessary descriptors of truly walking in unity. I'll give all four of these to you up front and then we'll fill them in as we go. The first is walking in unity is required of the believer. It's required of the believer. Second, walking in unity is recognizable within the body. Third, walking in unity is to be ranked high in your priorities. Is to be ranked high in your priorities. And lastly, walking in unity is rooted in our faith. Rooted in our faith. So getting into this first one here, and uh, just kind of a caveat to this morning, one question that I forgot to ask Pastor Harry was what time you guys normally end or how long he normally goes. So I don't even want to hear the answer. I'm just going to go, and uh, sorry, ahead of time. Uh, Point number one, walking in unity is required of every believer. Look back with me at verse one of chapter four. Paul starts off with these two words, I therefore. Uh, he, He, in essence, is telling you he wants us, as we're reading this, to remember the context of what he's already written. So in light of everything else that he's written, in light of all the realities that he has been writing and that he's been communicating, in light of all of that, what he's about to say uh, is going to be understood through that lens. He says, "'I therefore a prisoner for the Lord.'" Remember, Paul is in chains for this very message that he's writing about in the first place. He's not serving himself with this message, but he's serving the Lord. He's imprisoned on the Lord's accounts. He says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord. And, and here's where he starts to kind of up the heat a little bit under, under us as we read this text. Urge you. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul is showing a sense of authority here. What he's saying is what I'm about to write to you, this is not a suggestion, this is not a suggestion. But whenever you come across these words, whenever you come across any of the, the biblical authors starting with uh, them urging us to do something, our antennas should go up. And in that moment, we should say, "Okay, th- this is it's all important, but th- this especially I really need to pay attention to and really be locked into what it is that Paul is writing here." Paul uses this kind of language in Romans twelve one, in First Thessalonians chapter four verse one, and Peter even uses it in First Peter two. 11. Eleven. What's being written is to be taken extremely seriously. Just by way of illustration, uh, for any of you that are parents in here, you know the difference between when you're telling your child, "Hey, we're going to be leaving soon," or start to get ready. We're we're about to get going out of the house, uh, and, and you use that kind of language, that kind of tone, and you expect them to obey. You expect them to start moving and start to get ready. But you know the difference between, "Okay, now we're running late." And we got to move, right? And you go over to the child and you kind of come behind them and you start to move them along to where it is that you're trying to go and you start to urge them in that direction. There, there's a, a different, different level of intensity that's happening when talking to the child in that way. And you could say that's the kind of intensity that Paul is having here as he's writing these following words to us. And really as he gives us this command look back at verse 1 of chapter 4 he says I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called what does it mean to, to walk in a manner worthy well when you see wording like that in your Bible and when Paul uses these kinds of words, you can think of a set of scales in a marketplace that's balancing the the payment or worth of whatever it is that that you're using to pay on one side and making sure it measures up to its stated worth. And so what is it that we are to walk in a manner worthy of? What must our walk be worthy of? He says our calling. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-eight. Turn to Romans eight twenty-eight. Listen to what Paul writes here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, when you read that word called or the language of calling, What it's talking about is your salvation. What it's talking about is your justification. What it's talking about is the fact that you, as a believer, if your faith is in Christ, that you have been declared righteous before God. And so God is no longer looking looking at you with an eye of wrath, but instead with an eye of peace, being declared righteous because of Christ. Something that happens only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning there, there may even be some here who would say, Okay, I, I hear that, I don't really believe that, my faith is not in Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible would express very clearly then that, that you are not at peace with God. And instead, you are very much still at war with God. There there is, and because of being you are at and because you are at war with this holy God and and, and are living in your sin, not measuring up to his moral standard then God in eternity, when when this life here ends on earth, then God in eternity will pour out his wrath on, on you and everyone else who is rejecting him and rejecting his way of salvation. I say his way of salvation. Well, he provided a way of salvation by sending his son to die on the cross for the sins of all who would believe in him so that we can be forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. That, that is the message of the gospel. Uh, I would love to talk with you more about that message afterward. I know that there are others here who would as well. And so when, whenever we hear about this, this language of calling, whenever we hear about this language of, of, of justification, Paul has his eye and his view on believers as he's been talking through throughout this letter, uh, of, uh, throughout this letter uh, to the Ephesian church here. But when he talks about walking in a manner worthy... When he talks about walking in a manner worthy, there, there is a different, uh, a different uh, stage in a believer's life that he really has his attention in on, and that is not just the point of justification. It's not the future point of glorification, but what happens in between those two things. That is your sanctification, the process through which God is making us, making his children more like his son, Jesus Christ living with the aim of our lives, falling in line with God's righteous standard. We need to make sure we don't make a, a, what could be a very grave mistake, though, as we think about this text. Well, what Paul is not saying is that, uh, he's not saying to walk worthy to obtain your calling. He's not saying walk in a manner worthy, worthy to obtain your calling, to obtain your salvation, No, but walking in a manner worthy to display your calling. To display the work that has already happened in your life. A faith that bears fruit that would be verifying your calling. Turn to James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, James makes it clear that if someone has been saved, if someone has, has saving faith, then that will be displayed in their lives. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, the life of a believer, the way that we live, the, the way that we strive to walk in line with the Word of God and, and the, good, the good works that that produces in our lives, that doesn't save us, that doesn't grant us or give us favor before God, but it does, uh, it does show that there has been a work inside of, of our hearts, inside of our lives, uh, that, that then produces those good works. And it shows the watching world around us that we're no longer living lives of worship for ourselves, but instead we're striving to live lives of worship to our God and to our Savior. And so these, uh, when when Paul is talking about back in Ephesians chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, that's what he's talking about. Something that will, in essence, be verifying your calling and the work that God has already done. And this is required of every believer. And yet notice how quickly Paul brings it back to the whole body of believers. Second point, walking in unity is recognizable within the body. Look back at verse 2. He starts with saying, with all humility. So, so how are we then to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called? He starts off with saying, well, it's to happen with all humility. a True and full humility one that prefers others over yourself. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. If you ever want to know, what, what does true humility look like? How, how should my like, life look if I'm going to strive to live in a humble way, the way that Christ himself lived? Well, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he just goes on to to give and to explain the, the great way in which Christ displayed his own humility all the way to the point of death and then all the way to the point of being exalted by the Father. So this kind of humility prefers others over ourselves. This is a humility that acknowledges we don't don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be children of God. It's all a gift from God. Even as verse 7 of chapter 4 in Ephesians says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every aspect of our lives is a gift from God. Not only our justification, not only our salvation, but but the work that God continues to do in and through our lives is a gift from Christ. And so this means, when we talk about humility, this means that our view of those around us is a high view of those around us. It means that we're not being cynical. We're not walking around self-serving. We're not walking around being slanderous or angry or deceptive or degrading our brothers and sisters in Christ. I've heard this said about humility. This is, I think, a helpful definition. It's believing the right things about God and the right things about yourself. Believing the right things about God and the right things about yourself. You may hear that and think, oh, that sounds very uh, motivational. Uh, You may come out of that and think... Oh, maybe I'll have a high view of myself. No, then you're not thinking the right things about yourself, are you? No, we think the right things about God and then the right things about yourself. He says to do this with all humility, back in verse 2, and gentleness. Uh, This is the opposite of roughness. It's even when dealing with differences, being sensitive toward the sensitivities of others, avoiding unnecessary offense. This is a meekness. It's not a bowl in a china shop. And let me just encourage you, if this is something that doesn't come naturally to you, then then what that means is that you have to work even harder at becoming gentle. It doesn't mean we get to say, well, it's just kind of who I am and others just kind of have to deal with it. No, it's a command to be gentle. It's a command to, to walk in a way that is with gentleness, you could start with thinking about the Lord's gentleness toward you, and his kindness toward you. He says, with all humility and gentleness, and Paul goes on to write, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I find this to be a helpful definition of what Paul is talking about here. This, to have, this is to have a, a cautious uh, endurance that does not abandon hope. This would really be a description of, of relationships within a church, that we're not abandoning hope with each other, that, that we're not looking at the, the ways in which God is growing those around us and saying, well, that person's never going to change. It's been, it's been weeks, it's been months, it's been years, and, and I still see those, those immaturity in, uh, in the lives of others. Well, guess what? Those same things exist in you, don't they? The same things exist in me. And so we must patiently bear with each other. This should be a description of every church. And whenever we're being tempted to be impatient or fed up with others, again, remember God's patience and forbearance with you. Differences among believers must be lovingly tolerated. Again, remember the context Paul is talking to both Jews and Gentiles that are to be living alongside each other, worshiping alongside each other, with all the differences that they have. To bear with one another. Do this with patience. He says, bearing with one another in love. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. This is going to be a very uh, common, uh, familiar text to, to many here. But I never want to assume that whenever you hear the word love, or whenever uh, we we say the word love, I never want to assume that along with that, we are dragging along the the biblical definition or understanding of love. Oftentimes, we need to lay our eyes back on how uh, the Lord would describe and how Paul uh, describes and defines love. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, he says, love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Whenever the Bible is talking about love. whenever Paul is writing about uh, loving others and, and including love and in how we inter- interact with each other, uh, that's the kind of list that he has in mind. That's the kind of description or definition that he has in mind. There's a love that shows that we walk with Jesus as Jesus himself told his disciples that as, as the watching, as, as those around are, are watching them, the way that they love each other would show those who are watching whether or not they walked with Jesus. There's a little bit of a, a longer quote, it's just a couple sentences, but uh, this is helpful in thinking about this kind of love. It says this, this kind of love seeks the highest good in the one loved. And more particularly for the believer, it has the idea of seeking the will of God in the one loved. It is unconditional love that does not seek a response in kind. I think the most helpful part of that quote is is, uh, that it has the idea of seeking the will of God in the one loved. That's a good good, uh, litmus test, if you will. Uh, to, to, to test whether or not you are truly loving those around you. Do you desire to see the will of God uh, in this person that you are uh, interacting with? There's a kind of love that is accompanied by joy. And this isn't to be on the back burner. Point number one, walking in unity is required of every believer. Point number two, walking in unity is recognizable within the body. You can see how quickly Paul brings the rest of the body and how we interact with each other into view here. Walking in unity is to be important for those who love Christ, for those who have the Spirit dwelling in them. Walking in unity, uh, point number three, is to be ranked high in your priorities. Paul starts verse 3 with this word eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This one small word, this word eager, this is really what drives this whole third point here. What Paul is writing or commanding, what, what he's urging us to do, this is to be a priority. You should desire to do this. You should put every effort into doing this. It's really easy to not Especially as a church grows, it's really easy to, to, to think that there's unity. It's very easy to not think twice about, about your part or, or my part, our individual parts, in maintaining the unity of the church. And yet Paul is saying we, we're to be eager to be doing this very thing. It's to be a priority. or to be putting forth effort toward it. This is not to think about unity in the church and say, well, I did my best. I did my part. I can move on. No, but instead, it's a present tense, ongoing. I am giving it my all. I'm striving. I'm, I'm eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Maintain means something here. Uh, if You guys don't know me very well, but it's going to be pretty obvious where I'm going with this. Uh, If someone were to come up to me, if Hector were to come up to me and say, uh, Hey Joey, it's so good to see you. Uh, How are you doing maintaining your private jet? Would that make any sense? You guys can probably guess. I don't have a private jet, right? It would make no sense for him to ask me how I'm doing maintaining a private jet. Or if I were to go up to someone who doesn't have a car and I were to say, hey, make sure that you maintain your car. Would that make any sense? You can talk, right? No, of course not, right? It would make absolutely no sense. So what is the implication here of Paul saying, maintain the unity of the Spirit? What's the implication? That unity is there, right? Yes, follow along with me, right? You only maintain things that you have. You only are, can be commanded to or told to maintain things that you already have possession of. So Paul makes an assumption here that, may, that unity is already present. Why can he make that assumption? Boy well, he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit already dwells within the church. He doesn't have to be invited into the church. As Paul already talked about earlier on in Ephesians, the Spirit is already our guarantee. We already collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a matter of our identity. We can mar the very thing that unites us if we don't live this way alongside each other. See, heed this church. A church without unity runs the risk of no longer being a church. A church without unity runs the risk of no longer being a church. Think about what a church is. It's a place that believers go to be edified and to be equipped and and to, to be more like Christ alongside each other. It's a place that is to be a gospel light to the world around it. Well, both of those are in jeopardy Jeopardy without unity. The church and its unity must be nurtured. There's a gift that Christ died for. The church is the bride of Christ. I know Ephesians chapter 5 is often uh, used and, and quoted uh, at, when thinking about marriage because that is the context in which Paul is writing this, but uh, let's look at those verses in the context of just the church itself. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Whenever you think about the church, whenever you even think about uh, this local church, when you think about First Baptist Church, how often do you look around and think, this people... These are the people that Christ died for. These are the people that Christ shed his blood for. These are the people that Christ had his body broken for. to purchase for his own possession. And then when you look around in the midst of, at times, what could be conflict or contention... How often do you look at that conflict and contention and think, uh, we, we are at risk, if we don't put this to death, we are at risk of, of marring the unity and then the, the display of the very people that Christ died for. You can think about an old photograph. I'm preserving an old photograph. If it's not preserved, it will be left to, to fade Uh, discoloration will start to set in. A loss of clarity and quality will start to set in. It stops, in essence, looking the way that it was supposed to. You see the parallel there. The church is to be a picture of Christ. And, And very, very easily, if we don't maintain or strive to and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, it will very quickly stop looking the way it's supposed to. Paul says this is to be done in the bond of peace. You can think about joints and ligaments bonding the body together. This word bond can even be used in the sense of binding together a defensive structure. It's fascinating that it's peace that binds us together. But remember, whenever we talk about peace, whenever the Bible talks about peace, true peace is never going to be at odds with truth who were never called to compromise truth in order to maintain peace. True peace will never be okay with sin. We are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Point number four, walking in unity is rooted in our faith. Walking in unity is rooted in our faith. Look with me at verse four. Paul says there is one body, and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul gives a, a pretty uh, thorough and decisive list here. And all of it is to make one single point, drilling this into our minds, that, that, that the, and even keeping the context in mind, Jews and Gentiles now united together in Christ. And what's brought about this unity? Well, what is that unity rooted in? You could say that it's in what we share. You could also say that it's what we don't share with the world. One body, the body of Christ. One spirit, the spirit who dwells in us. One hope, the hope of eternal life. One Lord, the Lord whom we serve. One faith, the trust that we have in our Savior. One baptism, the outward display of our allegiance and new birth. And one God and Father the sovereign, loving, merciful God of the universe who we have been reconciled to, to be able to even call him father, adopted into his family, becoming heirs. In a lot of ways, Paul is summarizing a lot of what he went over in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, when explaining that mystery of the gospel and Gentiles being fellow heirs as the, within the people of God. I... I I'm sure I can say this uh, without even having talked with Harry about this ahead of time. I am sure that it brings Harry, that it brings Pastor Harry much joy to see and to watch this church, this group of believers grow in unity together. Welcoming each other, serving each other, building relationships, uh, bearing with each other's burdens, and yet, even though that is, I'm sure, prevalent throughout this church, it's more the reason behind that happening that brings glory to the Lord. It's more the, the motivation behind that that should really allow us to, to, to find joy in this happening in this church and in other healthy churches. The fact that it's not because of earthly ties. The fact that it's not because of mere commonalities, but no, because of unity that is rooted in your shared faith in a common Savior, in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm sure within this room there are varying levels of convictions on on different issues and different preferences on how even a church functions, and yet all of that gets gets set aside because of our faith and common faith in Christ and our Savior. And so, when you think about these verses, uh, there are there can be a tendency to either think overly introspectively or to think. Uh, in in a disconnected way from uh, from verses like this, so let me just encourage you, First Baptist Church, to take this personally, but not independently. Don't, don't look at these verses through an individualistic lens, but instead truly think, how can I strive to do this, to, to walk in obedience to these verses here at First Baptist Church so that I would be uh, a, a part of maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and not a hindrance to such a thing. And if you ever need motivation... If you ever need motivation to to humbly serve those around you, if you ever need motivation to be gentle and patient and bear with one another, let me just remind you, look to your Savior. Look to the one who has humbly served, who, who who humbly served those around him all the way to the point of death. Remember, this is a command that we find in Scripture. And remember that his commands always bring about that which is best, his glory and our good. I pray that this church would continue to be the great gospel witness that it is to those who come through these doors uh, as you interact with, with visitors and, and with fellow members of the church, but even throughout the week as you're engaging with each other and helping each other to grow in Christ-likeness, all for the goal of being a great light to this lost and dying world and for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that your word gives us and how you would call us to live. We're grateful, Lord, that this is a response to the work that you have done in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, Not to earn your favor. We thank you that salvation comes as a gracious gift and a gift alone. And Lord, we, we are grateful that you have called us and saved us into a people not to live this christian life alone and with without um, each other without doing this alongside one another and so i ask that you'd help all of us to rely on each other to to be a, a unified group and even within this church specifically i pray lord that you would allow there to be short accounts on on any uh, any sin that there would be uh, reconciled relationships throughout this church and friendships Lord, for your glory and not for our own. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen.